Okay, we continue in the Gospel of Mark. We've looked at Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial before the Sanhedrin, his trial before Pilate, his sentence to death. And now there's this little frame of time before his persecute or sorry, before his crucifixion that we would call the preparation. It's the preparation time for his crucifixion. There's that those few uh, hours, a couple hours. And that's what we focus on today is the mocking. The mocking of the king. It's very uh, uh just to just to just imagine for a moment the innocent son of God, one who became man, perfect God, perfect man, willing to Submit to this. I mean, just think of how great his love is for us and how that should prompt within us a, 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 an adoration and a, and a worship of him. Uh, very, very powerful. But Mark 15, beginning at verse 15 to verse, I'm going to read 21 as well, because 21 actually belongs with this section. And so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. He delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him on the head with a reed. They spat on him. Bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear or to carry his cross. Just want to look at one prophecy and one prediction of Christ Himself about this. If you go to Isaiah 50, verse 6, this passage is really a fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament. Many prophecies, but one of them is Isaiah 50, verse 6. 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me. My cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And you recall in Mark chapter 10, the three times that Jesus predicted his crucifixion and resurrection. But 10, 33 and 34 becomes the most explicit. Mark 10, 33, 34. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And here we're talking about this, the Gentiles. And they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And the third day, he again will rise from the dead. I think I better shut my phone off. Welcome.
Okay, so that's our focus. Mark 15, verses 16 through, actually verses 15 through 21. Mark 15, 16 through 21. You know, I entitled this Mocking the King, but you can also call it a carnival. A carnival of the king. A carnival is something like a fun fair. And this is what's really going on here. Imagine the, the display of mocking that's going on here. But yeah, that's what it is. It's a scene before the crucifixion, those last moments, those, that heinous crucifixion. It's a scene of mockery. And we just read the Old Testament passage, Isaiah 50, verse 6, how Christ fulfills that. And not only that, but how he fulfills the prediction that he gave to his disciples a couple weeks earlier in Mark 10. Christ knew it all. And he's fulfilling his office. He's fulfilling his task. He does so in obedience and loving obedience to his father, the father who so loved us that he gave his only begotten son for this. Pilate, as you know, all in the plan of God, released Barabbas, that criminal, that robber, that murderer. And now he delivers Jesus to whom? To the Gentiles, just as he predicted, the Roman soldiers specifically to be crucified. And you can see from what we read today, the, pre the, the preparations involved in, the, in preparing for the, 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 the crucifixion on the cross. Brutal, inhumane, treated as animals. And this was often usual for those who were being crucified but even more so for Jesus. According to one commentator, and I think that's probably in some ways a very fitting title for this section, a carnival for the king. A carnival of the king. Carnival, think of a carnival, right? A fun fair. The soldiers are mocking Jesus. They're having fun. They're playing with him. They're playing Mr. Dress Up, right? You know how children can sometimes dress up their dolls and make him into all sorts of things, and that's what they're doing with Jesus. And Jesus, he loves us so much, he's quiet, no complaint. He perseveres. He perseveres. He endures all this mocking, verbal abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse on our behalf. And we're going to see, first of all, we're going to see two things this morning. He willingly takes our disgrace. It's the disgrace that we deserve. He willingly takes our disgrace. And for what purpose? So that we can share in his glory. I mean, what two extremes? He takes our disgrace. See verse 16. After Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified, we read there, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Now, there's a lot going on here, but that word led is so key here. You see that word used throughout verses chapters 14 and 15 of the Gospel of Mark. That word led is very important. Jesus permitted himself. He allowed himself to be led. Just hours before, if you read 14, verse 53, if you check back to Mark 14, verse 53, 
It says there, it says there that he was led to Caiaphas, the high priest. And if you go back to 15 verse 1, the very first verse, they in turn then led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. What's going on here? The Old Testament scripture here too is being fulfilled before our eyes. Isaiah 53, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Christ permitted it. He led himself for this, for our salvation. And now we read he was led away by the soldiers into the praetorium. What's the praetorium? It's a word that we don't use today. But that was the palace of the governor, likely Herod, right? Even though he's from Galilee, but because he was involved in Jerusalem, Herod also had a palace in Jerusalem. And the Roman soldiers here, they're probably from Syria. That's, that's the understanding there uh, from commentators. They're from Syria. And they're there to be guards. They're, they're there to protect. They're, you could say, the security guards of the governor. And this time, too, Pilate was there. Pilate had his own palace. It was in Caesarea. It was a little ways away. But usually during tense times, like times like this, the Passover feast, when people from all over Israel would flock to the feast, would flock to Jerusalem, uh, the governor would often be there to make sure that order was maintained. And so Pilate is there as well. But this scene of the flogging doesn't take place inside here. Verse 15, it took place inside before Pilate. But now it goes outside into the open courtyard. And who do the soldiers call together? They call together a garrison. That's the word here. A garrison, the actual word is a cohort. And a cohort consisted of how many soldiers? How many soldiers? 600. It doesn't mean that they were all there. Okay, perhaps they were, perhaps they weren't. We don't know. But they're going to gather around now and they're going to make sport. Sport of whom? Jesus, the King of Kings. They're amusing themselves. It's so fun. One that's in their, in their hands, one under their power. King, really? It looks so ridiculous. Look how weak he is. Powerless, weak. They do five, actually they do seven things here. Thinks of seven, the number of completeness, the completeness of evil. Horrible. The first thing they do, we'll look at them briefly. They disrobe him. By the way, they disrobed him earlier too in verse 15. Verse 15 is a different disrobing than verse 16. But back in verse 15, when Jesus was being flogged before Pilate, they also disrobed him. And it's a horrible thing to be disrobed because nakedness is the ultimate shame, especially in public. Jesus was exposed. They just robed him. There's nothing more embarrassing. And then you can imagine the whip with that flesh hanging from his back and bleeding shreds. And then in verse 15, they, they, they wrap his clothes on him again. Can you imagine the pain that he would have felt? As the clothes are wrapped around, those big gashing lash marks on his back. And now in verse 15, they strip him of his clothes again. Verse 16. Can you imagine 
taking those clothes off after it, you know, the, the gash is being covered by those clothes and then taking them off. It's like peeling bandages off of open wounds, tearing them off. And they clothe him now with purple. That's the first thing they do. They clothe him with purple. Why purple? Why do they clothe Jesus with purple? Well, purple was a royal color, right? In the Orient times, a royal color. It was the most expensive, the most precious dye that one could buy in the ancient times. It symbolized royalty. The king of kings, the lord of lords. They don't realize it, but they dress him like a person might dress a doll, and they mock him, make fun of him, playing Mr. Dress-Up. They're playing dressing-up games. Let's dress the king. Let's make fun of him. And you think about it. It makes it all the more disgraceful because we know he really is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God, the divine son of God. What disgrace. I mean, for us, it's disgrace. But think of for him who was with the father from all eternity, who became man. That's the first thing. They just robe him and put on a purple robe. And what do they do after that? They're not finishing playing Mr. Dress Up still. And then you've got to continue the game. They put a crown on him. What kind of crown? A crown of thorns. And you know what they, where they got those thorns from? Probably from a field nearby. Twisted, they, uh, twisted uh, twigs. And they make a, a thorny crown. What a mockery. Where else do you read about thorns and thistles? Back in Genesis 3, verse 17 and 18. Remember when God cursed the ground after Adam sinned? What did he say? Thorns and thistles shall come out of the ground. And really, Jesus here is now, and they don't realize it. Jesus here now is pictured as bearing the curse of creation all of creation, including mankind, on himself. The crown of thorns, that curse is now placed on his head. Yeah, they don't realize it, but he's alone. He alone is able to deliver the curse, deliver us and the creation from the curse, to reverse the curse and bring the blessing. What a king. What a king who fought for us like this who would lay down his life for us, willing to subject him, submit himself to this kind of thing. There's no one that loves you more, brothers and sisters. There's no one that loves you more. That's why the worship of him is so glorious. The soldiers don't realize that God is using them. God is using them to fulfill his plan of salvation for us. As a songwriter says, see from his head, his hands and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. The crown of thorns pressed on his head. What do you think would have happened? Rivulets of blood, rivers of blood would have started coming down his face, running down his neck, blood all over his body. Well, they're not done playing dress up yet. Having him all dressed up, they now salute him. What do you do with a salute? with the hand. Hail! 
That's what they would do with the Caesars of the day. Hail Caesar, emperor of the Roman Empire. But now they're saying, hail king of the Jews. They're making fun, entertaining themselves. And a matter of fact, they're bending their knees. You can just picture if they're all 600 soldiers there, one by one, each taking a turn, saying hail, bending the knee and, and laughing at the same time. What Christ endured. You call this your king? Really? The world laughs at it. The crucified king, that's the one you believe in? One crucified and risen? Powerless? Bleeding? A slave? The slave of all slaves? It looks ridiculous. But here we see more by faith, don't we? He came surrendering to the curse. Surrendering himself, surrendering his life to the curse. So that you may be blessed. They mock him. And now they only not mock him, they become violent. We see that's the fourth thing. What do they do? When the first thing they do, they struck him on the head with a reed. What's on his head? The crown of thorns. And then imagine striking with a stick. It's a reed was like a strong, it's just plant, but it's a strong plant like a wooden stick. Picture him. And if you go to Matthew 27, you begin to see that's the reed that they place in his right hand. What does a king carry in his right hand? The scepter. It's a mock scepter. They put that reed in his right hand, and they're the ones that take his hand and start flogging him with it. Abuse to the core. Abuse. The crown of thorns presses deeper into his flesh on his head. And the sense here in the Greek is that they keep on hitting him with it. It doesn't stop. It's not once. They keep on, keep on, keep on. Hendrickson, a commentator, says it this way. It's as if to say, what a king are you? One that gets head over the head with his own scepter? You call that a king? Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Five. That's not enough. They spit on him. Isaiah 50, verse 6, they spit in his face, one by one, hurling spitballs at his face. Wow. The only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's who he is. They don't know what they're doing. You sense the, the evil, the evil nature of man, hurling its insults against one who alone is God, the Son of God. They bow the knee, number six. And in number seven, they're pretending to worship him. They don't realize, they don't realize that they're going to have to bow again before him at his final coming. Philippians 2, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. They don't see it. They don't understand. The world doesn't understand. The hitting, the spitting, the mock bowing, all preliminary steps to something more horrible that's just around the corner, the crucifixion. See verse 20, when they had mocked him, 
They took the purple off of him. They put his own clothes back on him again, and they let him out. There's that word led again. Verse 16 begins with the word led, and it ends in verse 20 with the word led. They let him out to be crucified. The one spattered with blood, blood everywhere. The one they ridiculed. You notice, Jesus is so exhausted. Most people who were crucified had to carry their own cross. Everyone did. Why does Simon now carry the cross? Jesus is so exhausted. There's no way he can bear up the cross anymore. And so they order, they compel Simon to Cyrene. Cyrene is from Africa. They force him to carry the cross for Jesus. We could say a lot more about that. But in this scene, what is Christ doing? He's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. There it is. He let it happen. He stared into it. He faced it. The punishment that I deserve. He's a son of God. And sometimes people think, well, okay, he could endure this because he's God. I mean, he could lessen the pain. But let's be really careful with that. J.C. Ryle says it this way. Never let it be forgotten that he had a real human body. A body exactly like our own, just as sensitive, just as vulnerable, just as capable of feeling intense pain. This is your king. You, you worship him? The world scorns, the world laughs, the world mocks. And you know what, brothers and sisters? This is only a small part. This is only a teeny, eeny, wincy part of all that he suffered. Mark here knows there was a greater suffering at a deeper level. And what is that? His suffering was a vicarious suffering. When you think of the word vicar, vicar, vicar is one who stands in the place of, it's a substitute. Right, One who stands in the place of, one who's a representative. What makes his suffering so full is that his suffering was vicarious. It means that he suffered for what we did. He suffered in our place. He suffered in our stead. He did, he took on the disgrace we deserved. That's vicarious. He suffered it for we who deserved it. Think how when we feel shame, we get very upset. Our honors hurt. But anytime that happens, please look to your Savior. Think about how humbled and humiliated he was for our sakes. He laid aside his glory. The King of Kings laid aside. He let go of his crown became human, became man for our sakes. In his infinite love, he willingly, and this is a willing, this, he voluntarily, he willingly, he lovingly suffered the disgrace, the shame for our sin. Was any of that blood wasted? Any of those drops of blood? Not one. It all had to be shed for the sake of our sins. One person puts it this way. Not one drop of Jesus' blood is wasted here. 
Never think of it that way. Gone to waste. God used every drop of blood that Christ shed for your and my salvation to all who believe on him. Yeah, to all who believe on him. That's key here. And follow him. He gives himself willingly. He gave himself intentionally, as one author says, for your sins in your place. And when we see him doing this, we ought to consider what our sins deserve. And we ought to hate the sin. That's the thing. That's the truth on belief and repentance. Hating the sin that pressed our Savior to the cross. He humbled himself in our place so that we might share. That's our second point. It's a shorter point. In his eternal benefits. Calvin, John Calvin says it this way. Christ to make us stand in the sight of the Father. Not to cower. Not to stand in shame. But to stand in the sight of the Father. That we may stand before him pure and unstained. This Christ was willing to be spat upon. With all the insults. And that, my brothers and sisters, comes to us. That those benefits come to us. To all who believe on him, the one who endured this for our sakes. He took our disgrace so that we may share in his glories. By the way, do you see the glory here? There's glory in this passage. More ways than one. Notice, they robe him. They crown him. They put a scepter in his hand. They salute him. They bow before him. They worship him. He truly is king. In their rebellion, they give great witness to the truth. This is who Jesus is. The one they mock truly is king. If only they knew, as Jesus had said, he would rise from the dead, gain victory over his enemies, over sin, death, and hell, and be and show himself in all his glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Only they knew. Today, of course, we don't stay at the cross. Christ has risen. And he is the exalted Savior and glorious King. Today, he wears a robe, a kingly crown, and he carries a scepter. Go to Revelation 11. What a contrasting picture you have of what you see in Mark 15. Revelation 11. Sorry, Revelation 19. <laughs> Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. I'd like you to follow along that if you can. Um, who this king really is and what he had to go through in order to do this for us, his church. John sees a vision. He said, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Who sits on a horse, a white horse, a king does. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, like a flame of fire. And on his head were what? Many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with what? A robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. The armies in heaven, that's his people, that's his church. See this sharing of his glory? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. 
Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And where's the scepter? Here. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. What's the name? King of kings and Lord of lords. A sword from his mouth. What's that refer to? It refers to the kingly task of the church. The members of the church. The preaching and the declaring of the message of the cross. Christ crucified. That's what the world needs to hear. The message of the cross in the world. And you know, you share as a congregation in this glory of Christ. You're reigning with him. The sword that the church bears in the world does so in the name of Christ. You share in the glory of his rule. How? By spreading this word, the message of the cross, right? Powerful to those who are being saved. Foolishness. People still mock it. To those who are not being saved, foolishness. But the power of God unto salvation. And you see it, right? The king exercising his power, not with a physical sword, but how? Conquering hearts. Bringing repentance and faith. Bringing conviction of sin. And bringing life. Wow. Through this word, Christ rules and does so with a rod of iron. Nations are being smitten by it. That's what Revelation 19 says. Smitten by it either to repentance unto life or judgment unto death. Psalm 2. Listen, O kings. Be wise, O rulers. All who repent and believe, submit to his authority, the Savior and King of Kings. <sighs> yeah, this is one of the benefits. You share in his reign. Seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, right? Seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have in your arsenal the, the sword that comes out of his mouth, the word of God. How else do you who confess Christ the King share in his glory? Two other ways, briefly. Christ who was disrobed Exposed to public shame and all his nakedness, did so so that he might clothe us with the robes of his righteousness. We saw that in Revelation 19. Dressed in white linen clothes. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah 61 verse 10. Isaiah the prophet says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Think, just think of how a parent does that with a child. I'm going to wrap you. I mean, there's a loving touch there, right? He, he wraps us in loving clothes of righteousness, robes of righteousness. One more way we share in his glory. Christ wore the crown of thorns, bearing the curse for our sin, so that we may receive the crown of life. That's a, that's a forever crown, that life. Revelation 2, verse 10. The messenger here encourages the church which is undergoing persecution and hard times with these words. You know, don't you fear what about what, you, what, what you're about to suffer. Don't fear them. You be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
There are so many other passages that refer to the crown of life, but this is one of them too. Brothers and sisters, let me bring before you him who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look up to him in adoration. Admire the wisdom of God and how he came to serve in such a way so that we could have this salvation. Salute him. Worship him. Adore him. God's anointed. He persevered for you, taking your disgrace so you may share in his glory. I want to conclude with one final quote from J.C. Rollins. I'll close with that. It's a beautiful quote. Nothing can overthrow and destroy the church. Nothing. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the Neros, the kings and leaders of our day have worked in vain to put down the church. They even slay their thousands. But you know what? They pass away and they go to their own place. But the church continues. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. Death to this one, death to that one. But the church lives on. The church is an anvil. Let me just, I, I even drew a little, I, actually I didn't draw this. This is the anvil. Okay. Oh, the other way. See the anvil here. Okay. And what's this? A hammer. Okay. The church is the anvil. And the world uses the hammer. And they're always trying to break the anvil. But the hammers are always breaking. And every hammer that will come will also break because the anvil cannot be broken. This is the church, brothers and sisters. Church and Satan. Yeah, right? The hammer, this anvil will outlast every hammer that is yet to come. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. This is how much Christ loved you to do this for you. To God be the glory. Amen.